Kevin Steinberg, and you're listening to Frankly Kev. This is the Everyday Hero series, where I talk to people who have faced one or even more of life's many challenges. We talk about what happened, how they got through it, and what they did to survive and maybe even thrive. On this episode, From the Ashes, my guest survived one of the UK's worst train incidents in history. It was believed that she wouldn't make it because of the serious injuries she sustained in the disaster. Not only did she survive with the help and dedication of her medical team and family, plus her own determination, but she also became the public face to lead the charge of survivors against the government and train commission for rail safety. And she also wrote a book from behind the mask about her life and ordeal. I'm grateful to have Pam Warren, international public speaker and leadership trainer, as today's special guest. Pam, thank you very much for being on Frankly Kev and a part of the Everyday Hero series. That's my pleasure, Kev, and it's lovely to see you. Now, I have to say, after reading your book and watching some of your videos and researching some of your story, a lot of your story, you are nothing short of being an incredible force of nature. <laughs> after reading your book, I was filled with... I can't explain it. I was so robust and so full, but it was full of joy about being alive. That's what your book did to me. It was like I was this balloon filled with helium. So thank you. Oh, that's brilliant. No, that is the nicest compliment I've ever received. Thank you. I read it in three days. I finished it wow. last, last night because I wanted it to be fresh for, for, for the interview. And what an amazing read it is. So I'm going to start off easy on you. Where were you born? What were you like as a child? And what was your childhood like? Okay. Oh, crikey. Right. Okay. Well, I only say that because it's unsure where I was born. Um, because my mother was a bit, she was a weird woman. I mean, she's passed over. Um, but uh, yeah, she, she never gave me my full history because I never knew my real father. Some say, some of the family say I was born in Singapore. Hmm. Um, but my real father was part of the British Army, hmm. so that's hence the reason why I'm, I'm British. Others say that um, I was born in England because my mother, my father, my real father was stationed over in England, hmm. and of course, mum was with him, and I was born here. And there's other stories about how I was born on the plane on the way over between Singapore and Britain. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so I like to think of myself as British. And do you have siblings? I do. I have one younger sister, and she's lovely. Um, and what are some of your best memories from your childhood or being with your sister? Um, actually, my sister and I used to fight like cat and dog. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we used to constantly be just bickering all the time. I'm sure a lot of people recognize that. But the funny thing is, since the train crash, we have been inseparable. She she is one of my biggest forms of support. Um, she fought for me, um, you know, tooth and claw. She really did. And now when I get myself, because I because I like to go off on adventures, mm. I sometimes get myself into a few scrapes. I always get myself out of them again, but um, she worries about me all the time. So she's almost taken over the role of my bigger sister. Um, but really, my childhood memories, I mean, there's so many. 
Um, some good, some bad, some indifferent. Hmm. I think my younger life was much, it was pleasant. It was, it was, we were sort of in the middle income bracket. So we weren't mm-hmm. poor, but we weren't rich. Mm-hmm. So money was a struggle. Mm-hmm. My uh, stepfather is a doctor of statistics. So um, he was in academia a lot. Mm-hmm. So of course they don't earn big money. However, they sort of had this visit vision for me of going through the education system, going to university, whereas I had other ideas. Um, as I got into my teenage years, I rebelled quite badly when I was 16. Like a lot of teenagers. And left home. What did you dream of being or what did you think you would be when you grew up? Actually, it's um, something I haven't thought about until I was writing the book. But... Um, I do remember I always wanted to be an inventor. I think even back then, my brain had the capacity to see a problem and start thinking, oh, I wonder how I could solve that. I mean, it's very childish, some of the things that went through my head, but I've actually got some sketches from my childhood where I was drawing weird things that now I look back at them and I think they wouldn't possibly work. They can't possibly work. But even then, that's what I was really attracted towards. Um, kind of thinking served you well, because knowing you through your book, you figured out a way to survive yeah. and get through all of your injuries and your, your, your surgeries and physiotherapies and then all the different things uh, that you've done in your life. So I, th- I can see that inventor brain, your inventive with your life and you're willing to say, oh, I'm going to try this now. Oh, I'm going to try this now. So I commend you for that. Yeah, I mean, as you know, it doesn't always work out. (laughs) No. (laughs) We have many more failures than successes, but that's how we learn and and grow. Yeah, I've always said, actually, you can't have success unless you failed. It's not possible. Uh, You learn so much from your failures. You learn far more than you do from when you succeed. So I never look at them as a negative. No, no. Now, you were a businesswoman and in finances, correct? Yeah, I worked in the financial services industry uh, and I had set up my own company. I I started off working for a large insurance company, um, but even then I I didn't like being told what to do. (laughs) I'm the same. So eventually I left and um, over the years managed to set up my own company, still in financial services, and I sort of grew that and Hmm. it went really well, I'm pleased to say. It worked. I had lots of really nice clients. I used to sell company pension schemes, would you believe? That was what actually turned me on back then. I enjoyed it. Um, You gave me a pension graft and I was quite excited. Um, and then with the people that I met through that they became clients and it just so happened that they tended to be high net worth clients so eventually because um, to begin with I became a fairly big company but then we had a recession back in 1987 so that hit us quite hard and eventually all the staff had to leave came very close to going bust Um, But I managed to salvage some stuff. But I decided then I wanted to stay as a sole trader. I didn't want 
the responsibility anymore of other people, you know, employing other people and being responsible for their welfare. So I stayed small, but I still kept these high net worth clients. So eventually I was able to close my doors to new business. And the funny thing, I've always found this curious. The minute I said, right, I've got enough clients, I don't need to look for new ones. I shut the door, said I wasn't accepting new clients. And that's when people started banging on my door. (laughs) It was almost as if, why? Why is she so exclusive? We want her. And the amount of fees that I could then charge, because I never took commission on insurance policies or pensions. I always charged a flat fee. That was it. And the commission went back into the policy. Um, So, yeah, I became quite popular. Saying no is very powerful. It is. I mean, you need you need a lot of um, schutzbar, should I say, to yes. to turn people away. However, if you, I've never understood this with big companies. Why keep looking for new customers if you concentrate on your existing customers? Really treat them almost like royalty. You know, really pamper them and make sure they feel good. So they want to keep paying you and they want to keep you employed. You know, to me, it makes life so much easier. That's a very good mindset and business strategy. Yeah. And it's it's one that, to be honest, I still continue today. Um, I prefer to, rather than continually looking for new business, Um, I try to treat everyone the same way as I'd want to be treated myself, which I'm sure a lot of people live like that. And I don't think that enough businesses consider this. They're like after the the profits and so forth, and we've lost customer service and that personalization. It's amazing how loyal your your clients will be and your reputation will, will shoot through the roof if you treat people the way that you even better than you want to be treated yeah i mean i've come across instances where that's that's happened even with a big company where they went beyond my expectations i jumped onto social media i was seeing phrases i was adding their handle whereas other companies that have um you know like the big telephone company is the most recent one i've been so disappointed with them they don't want to help me they want to charge me lots of money for not giving me very good service so I'm jumping again onto social media, but I'm sort of saying, don't go to this company. They're not. Yeah. Good. Dealing with cell phone companies is hell. Yeah. It can be. And un- unfair. And they know they know that we're addicted to our iPhone or whatever and that we want it and that we need it so that they can yank us around to do anything they want because we're not going to give it up. We, might, we may shop around for a better price here or there, but we're still... S- stuck in that loop of like, I need my cell phone, I need internet, I need this, yeah. Although I think a lot lot of the big companies, they count on apathy. So Hmm. they count on the fact we won't bother to move. Whereas I've taught myself now every single year, I sit down, I go through all my services and I will phone them up and either renegotiate or I will say to them, I'm leaving you. But you, if you say I'm leaving you for a better deal, you have to be ready to follow through. And it's actually amazing when you do that, that they will um, figure something out. They drop the price. Because they they do actually want to keep you. 
They do, but then I, that's what gets me mad. I keep thinking to myself, why don't you give us that in the first place? <laughs> right? No, no, you have to ask for it. It's it's like the, the good stuff, the sale is behind the curtain, but don't tell anybody unless they ask for it and then show it to them. <laughs> yeah, it's such it's so short-sighted now are you still in finances and are you still in business and do you still have your own company or what are you doing now i know i know that you're speaking well actually i am um, uh because of the train crash i was up until that day in fact i was traveling into london to go to a um training course um on the day of the train crash a financial training yeah. course yeah i was sitting an exam later on that year and um because of that i was too badly injured to continue work and they said to me the, the likelihood is you'll never be able to go back to work so um i had to sell my business you know i couldn't leave clients hanging around so i sold that and because my recovery took me over a decade um I came out of that recovery and I wasn't sure what to do because my health has been affected. I can't work a nine to five job five days a week. I'm physically not able. Because your your energy, your strength, your ability to focus, all of that. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, even now I'm left in constant pain from my injuries. So pain is quite tiring. Um, and I've got chronic um, post-traumatic stress disorder. So mentally, I, I would say I'm mentally I'm strong, but in other areas I can be not as robust as I'd like to be. Mm -hmm. So I've had to readapt and reinvent myself. And I've tried various things actually since my recovery. I started, um, I tried to be an event manager for a while because my reasoning thought you work really hard on the event and then you can take a rest afterwards doesn't work that way <laughs> um and then eventually i became a project manager same idea excuse me because of my throat bear with me a second i'm just going to take a sip of water please do i had my sip of coffee <laughs> sorry that's the scarring in my throat it, it um, gets aggravated we're talking but um <clears throat> And then while I was a project manager, because I'd been standing up and, and being asked to speak at conferences, and I've been doing it occasionally, um, and then somebody in the audience happened to be a professional speaker, and they came up to me and said, why aren't you on the circuit? I didn't even know there was a circuit. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I certainly did not know that you could get paid for speaking. Yes. Wasn't aware of that. Um, and so he introduced me to an organization where you train and I took a year's apprenticeship and then notched myself out there as a professional speaker and touch wood, <laughs> doing okay. I'm now getting to travel the world, which I enjoy doing, um, do, doing my speaking. How many years have you been speaking now? Uh, I started in 2014. So, oh, so quite, uh, a, yeah. quite a while. A few years. So roughly how many engagements would you say you have a, a year now? I restrict myself because after the train crash, my attitude on life changed a lot. So I'm not after being a millionaire. As long as I can pay my bills and I've got a fairly comfortable lifestyle, I'm happy. That's all I want. Work-life balance. Yeah. 
also I've got to take into account my physical abilities, my physical and mental abilities. Mm-hmm. So I've always said I will only do a maximum of 15 a year. And because things have been going so well, um, even during the pandemic, I'm pleased to say, um, I'm actually thinking about reducing that even further. Mm-hmm. Because my ideal would be if I was working 10 months of the year and then having two months off, that would really be my ideal. And you said you travel as well outside of London for speaking engagements. Yeah, I mean, I travel nationally all the time um, in the UK, but I am booked to go abroad. So, um, yeah, I travel to different countries. Did you find during COVID that you were giving a lot of talks over Zoom? Did that change? Yeah, particularly as um, the lockdown really bit, everybody wanted to talk about resilience, um, which, of course, is a cornerstone to what I talk about um, using the experiences I've had about how you keep going. Um, So I became extremely popular over the lockdown so i have been (laughs) and that that is what your talks are are focused on resilience and and change and adaptability yes i mean when i first started everyone wanted me to talk about the train crash Mm -hmm. and don't get me wrong i i i owe a lot to you know that to me changed my life completely um and it gave me some challenges yes Mm -hmm. but it's also given me lots of opportunities So I don't mind talking about it. However, to be honest, I was getting a bit bored Hmm. um, because I'm standing up and giving the same talk each time. So now I've changed it slightly in as much as I pulled out everything I'd learned through not just the train crash, but what I then went on to campaign for greater real estate, start rebuilding your life when you've lost everything, all that sort of stuff. And it's those lessons I then pass on, but I use my story obviously, to illustrate how I used whatever the tools are. Well, this seemed uh, like it flowed from what you were doing, which was after the accident and after you had recovered quite uh, quite a bit, but I know that you were still going through quite a bit as well. You started campaigning and lobbying for uh, train safety, and you you headed the Paddington Survivors Group? That's right, yes. It was um, when I got out of hospital, I'd been shut away in the hospital. So I didn't know how many people had survived. I didn't know, um, I didn't really know anything because all the media attention had died down at that time. So I sent a communication out um, to the other survivors and quite a few of them responded, about 80 odd. So again, just thinking on my feet, I thought, okay, we'll better meet up. So we met up in a hotel and that's where the group was born. And to begin with, we started off as just a support group. We were going to support each other. However, alongside that, the government had set up an inquiry into what had happened, why our crash had happened. It was during that we started hearing some of the evidence. And it was then that it dawned on us that it wasn't really an accident. An accident is something you can't foresee. Whereas I always refer to the train crash as an incident. The powers that be knew potentially what could happen. And they made a decision at that time. 
that it was cheaper to parent compensation than it was to put things right. That got us annoyed. You see this in business again and again and again all over the world. They look at profitability and they hope something isn't going to happen, a disaster isn't going to happen, an oil spill or whatever that's going to affect people, that might injure people, that might kill people. And they will look the other way. They know what they're supposed to do. Like, I mean, how long did it take to get seatbelts in cars? They knew. And until they put them in. So I, I did look this you know, into this. So it seems like uh, some of the things that they knew that needed to be improved were things like driver training, uh, signal visibility and their management, automatic warning system, AWS, res the response of signalmen. And I was shocked, even though this is 20 years ago, I was shocked that, first of all, that a driver would go through not just one or two red lights, but it seems like he went through, there were three or, or four, and that there wasn't some way for, you know, uh, the airport, you have the tower where the operators are, that there wouldn't be some central office where they could automatically shut down the train or that the train is already yeah. wired to automatically shut down or that they can't they couldn't it's 1999 they couldn't radio him and say hey what are you doing so all of this surprised me i'm very very impressed <laughs> <laughs> thank you yeah, i'm under i'm a big nerd you are right i mean the inquiry that's what came out of the inquiry there was this huge list and yep, the signalman could not talk to the driver. Um, nobody could do anything. The signalman saw what was about to happen. The two trains were hit. There was absolutely nothing he could do about it. They knew. They saw. They, they just could. All they could do was sit there and watch it happen. Right. So yeah, that's why we got angry in the group, and that's when, um, because the group had voted me as the chairperson. We sort of all together, we made the decision we wanted to stop it happening again. And there had, there had in this country been train crashes before us, some quite bad, um, and nothing had happened. So an inquiry would be held and then nothing would happen, nothing would change. And we did not want anyone going through what we had just been through. Good for you. And the only way to do that was to hold the government and the rail industry to account. Because you know what governments are like. You get it in your country, don't you? Where they go, oh, money's no object. Yes, we'll get all this right. Then they just sort of wait a few months until everyone's lost interest and it never gets done. Look at the homeless crisis. And they keep taxing this and taxing that and allotting millions of dollars or hundreds of million dollars to build them apartments or whatever. And it's like, so where is it? And they're just increasing on the street. Yeah. I mean, they're all like that. So... Unfortunately, it does take somebody or something to hold them to account. Mm -hmm. So that's what the group turned into. We became a campaign group. And because um, because I was so badly burnt, plus I was a woman, you know, and I was wearing a plastic mask to save my face, the media sort of focused in on me. So I became, if you like, the public figure of the group, the Paddington Survivors Group. And to be honest... I sort of, I was quite mercenary about it in as much as I didn't take a penny piece from the media. I felt that would um, 
that will taint my integrity. If I'm pushing for something, I want it to be coming from an honest place within myself. But I knew the more attention we got, the more public would stay on our side. So if it had to be me with the plastic mask, I was quite, I had to wear the plastic mask anyway. Um, then I was happy that we used it in our campaign. And luckily it worked. I can ask if you uh, resented it, but I have a feeling just becoming a, a symbol and something that the media could latch onto. And if it, if it moved the conversation forward, then it was all for the best. It was, yeah. And I very quickly managed to work that out in my head. Yeah, I didn't like wearing the thing. Um, mm -hmm. However, you've got to bear in mind, I saw my face when the mask came off each day. Um, so I could see the improvement. And believe me, there was a lot to improve. I mean, I'd lost all the skin from my top lip upwards. It was gone. I was wearing it partly for vanity because I wanted a face. Uh, but also, yes, once I realised that the, it grabbed the public's attention enough to then for us to to carry on campaigning and get things changed, then I was willing to use it. So I've never resented it at all. And that this is called a Perspex mask and it's a clear acrylic mask. Yeah, I've actually, <sighs> I dug it out for you. Oh, and there was uh, some sort of ointment between the mask and your skin and it acted like a, a greenhouse and it helped all the skin grafts. Gosh, you did read my book. Um, <laughs> yeah, you can see the hooks here. So yes. it would have a really strong elastic band so that it could it mm -hmm. put pressure on my face. Because what the surgeon did was he took skin from other parts of my body and basically rebuilt my face with it. And But because it was patchy, um, if it had been left, I would have ended up with raised scarring, the hypertrophic scarring. Mm -hmm. So this applied even pressure. That's why it's hard. And because it's clear daylight makes it hot and sweaty underneath and that was really good for the joints where the grafts are um but the deal was i had to wear it for two years the surgeon said i had to wear it for 23 hours a day to be honest after a while i thought what's the point in taking it off for an hour i didn't understand why 23 why not 24 why not 20. i think he i think he really wanted to say you have to keep it on permanently but he didn't think a human being might then turn around and go, well, I'm not doing that. That sounds like torture. Um, but it's surprising how quickly your body adapts. And my body adapted to it. And you almost forget that you're wearing it. And it saved me a fortune mm -hmm. in makeup. Didn't have to wear makeup at all. <laughs> it's a good way of looking at it. And when it's raining, it keeps your face from getting wet. Um, but yeah, no, it, it did its job, which is the main thing. And you obviously during this time couldn't wash your face because this the skin was healing. Yeah, yeah. You you basically didn't. You you had to leave it. To explain to uh, people listening to audio today, the mask that Pam showed me looks like a much nicer version and a see through version of what the Phantom of the Opera wore. Pretty normal to me. I mean, how did people react? Oh, uh, um, well, I mean, I was recognizable. <laughs> There aren't many people walking around with a plastic mask on. Um, <laughs> I do remember there was this one time when I was sat in um, a car and a pedestrian was walking past. And mostly the pedestrians were coming up and saying, well done on what I was doing campaigning and stuff. But this lady, she knocked on the window 
and she she started talking to me like this there is nothing wrong with my hearing <laughs> we love you pam all the best <laughs> So obviously it, it worked. You wore it for two years and your skin, I said this in the our pre-interview chats and to let listeners know, Pam's skin is lovely. You would see this woman and you would never know that she was in any kind of accident and that also that her hair was affected. Your hair is, is, is lovely. I want your skin. <laughs> well, I I still have scars. Don't get this is camera. I have to wear camouflage makeup. I can't wear normal makeup. It has to be camouflage. And things like um, my lips are misshapen, so I have to paint them on. Um, so there are disadvantages. But you got to remember, I had a face for thirty-two years before the train crash. So this face to me is different. Um, I do. I am used to it, but. It does look different to the way I remember me looking. That's that's an interesting point because I well I saw from your book pictures of you when you were younger and then I see you now, but I I didn't make that connection. And so just from your perspective, to look in the mirror and say this this is my post incident face and to get to to accept it, right? Yeah, it it's it's funny, actually, because I will look in the mirror uh, to put my makeup on or to, you know, if I'm doing a gig, I'll check my makeup. I don't often look in mirrors. I, I don't I've, I've never discussed this with my physiotherapist. It's not because I hate my face. I don't hate my face. I love my face. Um, but it's almost because I don't. I don't bond with it emotionally. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a face. Mm -hmm. And it's a passable face, and it's a face that I can go out in public with, I suppose. Um, but I don't feel, I don't look at myself in the mirror and go, oh, yeah, fine, girl, you're looking great, or anything like that, because it just doesn't occur There to isn't me. that connection because it wasn't your natural face from childbirth. Right? Yeah, yeah, I suppose it must be yeah. that, yeah. And to me, even though um, other people don't notice it, I know oh, it feels different. Mm. Like th this portion of my forehead feels very tight all the time. Interesting. Um, and as I told you in the pre-interview, um, the plastic surgeon thought I'd be really pleased because the grafting, where I'm grafted on my face, that will never wrinkle. The problem comes, and I've already worked this one out, because I put my hands over my eyes when the fireball hit, I saved my eyesight, thankfully. But, of course, I save the skin around my eyes, so that will wrinkle. And then my neck's going to wrinkle because that wasn't burnt. So I'm going to end up looking like a tortoise. <laughs> I will look like a tortoise in my Well, And my surgeon thought I'd be happy with this. Have my version of what you're talking about because, you know, after surgery for, for cancer, my left side of my face was paralyzed and that I was never going to smile the same, that my eyes wouldn't light up when I smiled. They did. Oh, thank you. I mean, that's amazing. Um, how many skin grafts and procedures do you think you had over the years? I stopped. I remember, I think I stopped counting. Um, I got up to about, in my mm. head, 23. Um, mm. And then 
it was because they they do they, a lot of operations over two years because you can't have everything done at the same time. Um, and it was actually me that put a halt to it because I, that's two years of at least twenty three, possibly more, going under general anaesthetic, having bits of skin taken off and parts of your, and grafting is painful. I had no idea. It is so painful um, that I turned around. To them, I had turned around to them after two years and said, look, I look all right. It'll do. <laughs> I, I don't want any more operations. I'll, I'll put up with the way I am now. So they always had to put you under, and I, I didn't know that. And I also didn't know that uh, grafting was painful. Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, you're lucky that you haven't needed it. It, um, it's actually not so much where they put the grafts on because I've got grafts on my face and my hands um, and parts of my legs. Um, it's where they take the skin from, the donor site, because they have to shave it really thin off that area. Oh, my gosh. I, I couldn't believe the pain that comes from those areas. Um, and so, like yourself, a lot. I had a lot of nerve damage from the fireball. So not all my feeling came back, but I still felt the pain. Gosh, <laughs> did I? Which is why for years I was on morphine, which is another reason I wanted the operations to stop. Right. You had do donor uh, skin or tissue from different parts of your body, like your inner arm or your thigh or something. Yeah. yeah basically, um, when I'm unclothed, I look like a patchwork doll. Has it been years since you've had any skin grafts that they stopped years ago? Yes. As I said, after two years, I put a yeah. stop to it. However, yeah. I do have to go in every now and then. Because I damage myself every now and then, I can tear a graft, and it doesn't heal like normal skin. So there have been times when I've had to go back in to have mm. a graft um, repaired. So I'm a bit like that old car that needs a bit of tinkering with every now and then. Mostly your face and your hands were damaged because you had lifted up your hands to your face. They saved your eyes, but then your hands were badly burned and you went through a whole process of uh, procedures and skin grafting and physiotherapy because from what I see, I watched some of your videos and it seems like you have great uh, or almost 100% dexterity, but I'm sure it's taken a, lo a lot of work to get there. Yeah, I mean, the, the surgeons told me I'd get 50% usage back. Um, but me being me was going, that's not good enough. Um, mm -hmm. So all the exercises they were asking me to do, I'd push myself further. I would do more of them when it got painful and I was on the floor crying with pain. I'd still keep going because I wanted, I'd noticed actually while I was lying in that hospital bed, how much we use our hands. We use mm. it not just to do things like buttons and zips and stuff, but we use it to show affection and we use it to express mm. ourselves. That's why I wanted my hands back. Mm. Um, and now I've got, I've got about 95% usage in my left hand um, and it moves quite well. I've only got about 85% in my right but, I mean, it's 85% it, is much better than 50. And this hand, the nerve endings didn't really grow back. So um, I can tell the difference between hard and soft with my right hand, but I can't tell 
um, texture or um, oh, cooking's interesting because hot, hot and hot and cold. Uh oh, uh oh, uh oh. Yeah, I have quite severe oven gloves that I have to wear around the kitchen. And chopping an onion, my friends actually cringe when I'm chopping. <laughs> Uh, we won't. We won't uh, submit you to the Iron Chef or the Great British Baking Show. No. <laughs> it would be a bloodbath. I tell. You. <laughs> now, I only know this because I, uh, I read your book, and for for listeners out there, uh, Pam's uh, hands were bandaged for quite a while, correct? And also, uh, in your hospital bed, uh, they were uh, attached to some sort of trapeze correct so yep. that and that now why was why was that that they had to be kept up there and out of the way um well they were they were they were about four times the size of my normal <sighs> and i didn't have any knuckles and they'd already been grafted they grafted my hands while i was in the coma so in order to heal they had to be suspended while i was unconscious because if they would lay down the blood would pull right um, yes. But once I was up and about, I didn't have to use the trapeze apart from when I slept. Because again, once you're horizontal, they need to be vertical. Yeah. But getting them moving again when you haven't got any knuckles, um, it, that was what the physiotherapy was for. Basically, they had to force my bones to go back into the, if you like, get the joints back. Yeah. Uh, and they could only do that by grabbing each finger and then physically bending it so that's what physiotherapy mostly was was them taking an end of each digit and just pull stretching it out and then bending it and bending it at each joint joint i mean even this this one i lost the joint completely which is my right thumb so my right thumb is constantly fixed um but yeah these uh that's all where the physiotherapy had to be done. It's fascinating how the body can heal itself. I mean, of course, we're, we're helping it along the way medically and with physiotherapy and medication and so forth. But it's just incredible where you were at post-incident and where you were a couple of years later and where you are today. And that, you know, you do have a face, a lovely face, and you can use your hands. And um, I mean, there were also some other injuries. And even though you said like you might look like a little um, patchwork doll or something, still, I mean, you're you're successful and you're active and you're alive. You're living a life. Oh gosh, yes, but I mean, you'll know this from your experience. You you come out of all these types of experiences knowing how wonderful life is and I don't care what happens as in I don't care what gets thrown at us even the pandemic I wasn't that disheartened I mean yes I didn't want it yeah I think with anyone who's been through a traumatic experience particularly where your life has been threatened um, you come out of it and you just you appreciate life so much more it's almost like and I don't mean this the way it's going to sound it's almost like you were living life in black and white and suddenly it's technicolor. And I don't mean that everyone's living a black and white life at all. You know what I mean? It's everything becomes that little bit sweeter no, no. and that little yeah. more exciting. And I think that's also why some people I know who've been through um, or faced death, they become quite adrenaline junkies. 
because they want to get that rush of adrenaline. Me, I've become a change junkie. If my life gets too static or gets too samey, I deliberately throw things into it to just, you know, stir it up, get things moving again. Um, so I think everyone, yeah. I'm yeah. sure you'll agree, you you must feel this within your own life, don't you? Oh, oh yeah. The thing is, this is what, I mean, this is primarily why I enjoy the public speaking because I want everyone to feel what I feel <laughs> without mm. having to go through the trauma of some mm. horrible life-threatening disease, accident, you know, dramatic thing happening in their lives. But I want them to realise that um, life is really exciting and wonderful. Yes, it can, it can. It definitely can be. I say attitude is everything. Perspective, because some people are just, you know, I don't know. They're they're angry or they're sad or they're they're full of um, blame or jealousy, and it's just it's just what your your mindset and we have control over that it's not like oh i'm wired this way we could change it like that if we wanted to yeah we you're right um and i think um the people that pick up self-help or self-improvement books are doing the right thing they they generally want to um change in that mm -hmm. way mm -hmm. i think for us if you like again from our experiences there's almost something that becomes part of our makeup where we can look at things really quickly and go, right, is anyone dead? Is anyone injured? No, in which case it's not that important. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, but I do that in an instant and I'm summing up anything that I'm having to think about that way. If somebody were dead or injured, then I'm going to stop, aren't I? But um, no, if it's, if it's neither of those two, then it's not really that important. You did decide to live life again after realizing what you had survived. And, you know, from your book, I know that you started cooking again because that had stopped for a while and you love you love cooking and that you bought yourself a James Bond car, right? And that is that at the Aston Martin and that you started tra traveling again. So t tell us a little bit about this because these are things that brought you joy um right okay so mm -hmm. i made myself a promise this is to myself which is when i face death hopefully the last time in the future i want to be able to look back on mm -hmm. my life and say boy i had fun that's what i want to be able to say so and we all have these little dreams don't we and i had the capacity at that time to make them come true. The food thing, I've always been a cook, not a professional cook, yeah. a, just, a, just a sort of um, layman cook. But I like experimenting. Mm. So I like food from different countries. Um, and when I was on morphine, which as we mentioned before, was for quite a few years, that kills off all your taste buds. So everything tasted the same. Oh. It was horrible, yeah. It completely eradicates your taste buds. One of my favourite things in the world is chilli. I love hot and spicy food. Your taste buds cannot tolerate any spice whatsoever. So I was I was bereft for those years. So once my hands, which was another reason I wanted my hands back, once I got my hands back, 
I then had to, I wanted to get back to cooking. As my taste buds recovered, two things was um, I had to reintroduce chili into my diet, as in take very small amounts and then build up my tolerance. But now I'm back to full throttle chili. And also I've had to buy lots of kitchen gadgets because my hands can't do everything mm. they used to. So a bit like we were talking about burning yourself on the hob, I, I had to buy those um, silicon gauntlets so that I don't burn myself. And the only thing I haven't worked out how to get round because I don't like chopped vegetables in a mixer thing um, mm. is chopping an onion mm -hmm. with a knife quite safely. Um, but then I just have to be extra careful. And the traveling, again, I've, I've made myself a promise that I will see as many countries before I die as I possibly can. So, and I want to um, experience them. I don't want to just go there and be a tourist. So I always hire, I tend to hire um, tour guides, but from local universities, wherever I'm visiting, because they want to practice their English, because quite often it's not an English-speaking country. Um, and I want to get a local's point of view of the country. So that's been fantastic. I've had some wild adventures. Where are some of your favorite places that you've gone? Tahiti. Oh, I could have run off into the jungle. I really could. The people are just adorable. Um, mm. And the different islands. Oh, <clears throat> it's just exotic, like, I imagine. But it was for me, it was like paradise on earth. It really was. And mm. it's not. Although it has, it relies on tourism, obviously, um, it's understated. So it's not great big skyscrapers and things like that, which I'm not keen on. The other place I really liked was Sri Lanka. Um, that was a real eye opener. I learned a lot about the Buddhist faith. I don't have any particular religion. I'm not, um, again, my makeup, I don't really feel comfortable with constructed types. Sri Lanka, I reckon, is a country, if I had, if I was a multimillionaire, I'd definitely want to live because, oh, the people are just even more wonderful than the Tahitians. But um, what I found intriguing was the whole of Sri Lanka is, well, 90% of it is Buddhist. And I didn't know that much about Buddhism. I'm not a great religious person, so um, I don't have any religion myself. However, the more I learned about Buddhists, and I actually sat down with a venerable Buddhist monk and talked to him, it's more about a way of life. And it was such a nice attitude to have towards life and your fellow human beings and the creatures and the fauna and everything around you. Um, to me, it was really attractive. Now, I haven't become a Buddhist, but I have adopted some of the things that I felt was um, sort of soul enriching from it. And if I had to have a faith, I think I would choose Buddhism. And it, to me, it's, it's more about leave, living a decent life. And it, it also seemed to focus very much on how you're affecting. Being kindness. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than what's in it for me or what's this religion doing for me, that sort of thing. Um, so, as I said, I mean, I haven't become a Buddhist, but, yeah, I, I'm attracted to it. Oh, and the food in Sri Lanka, I'm not joking. I went out there for four weeks 
touring around and um, I put on a stone in weight. The food is just incredible out there. What kind, what kind of food is it? It's sort of a mixture of Indian influence, the curries mm -hmm. and stuff, obviously. But there's a bit of Thai. Um, they've got they've got a mixture of Malaysian influence in there. Mm. I love all those flavors. Mm, everything mm. just tasted wonderful, and I could not stop eating. And fresh. Very fresh. Oh, and it's absolutely wonderful to be able to sort of stroll along the lane and pick a pawpaw from a tree and just eat it. You, you, you know, you're not in a supermarket. Wow, it's so it's wonderful. Now, um, I want to say happy anniversary because today is the 22nd year to the date that you woke up from your three-week induced coma, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. <laughs> October 26th, 1999. And sorry, we're, we're, we're jumping back, backward and forward. Um, was the reason that they put you in that coma just because the this, uh, severity of the injuries yeah. and the state of shock that the body might be in, it just sedates, sedates the physical, the emotional, the, the mental, everything is just kind of in a, a suspended animation yeah that i was it was explained to me that had i not been put into a coma i would have died mm. there would have been no the injuries were that severe mm. um my body had already gone into shock by the time i'd gone into the ambulance mm. um so i'd already passed out thankfully um and then it was a case of while they had me in a coma, they would occasionally try and bring me up. But as soon as my body was showing um, signs that it wasn't coping. So it wasn't really the mental side they were treating. It was more the physical side. But my parents told me um, that when they were called in and I was already in a coma, they, it took them a while to find me because they were told the wrong hospital. Oh, you and then when they did find me, my mother actually turned around and said afterwards that she didn't recognize me. I was so badly burnt. The only way she could tell I was her daughter was because I was still wearing um, the watch she'd given me for my birthday. Hmm. Um, and they were told to prepare for the worst. Hmm. So it, I wasn't supposed to Make pull it. through. Um, but I've always said that I'm an obstinate little thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I think even in my unconscious state, I was going, no, I'm not going this way. I refuse to go this way. Yeah, and so I back I back. There's something about the re resilience of the, the mind and body and mostly I think the, the spirit. You know, sometimes I look back at what I've been through and see that so many people have have died. And, you know, what is it that, that keeps me going so you know i think that uh with you it, it it is all of that it's the mind the body and the spirit it is i mean as you know because you read the book i did go through a dark patch mm -hmm. during my recovery which i'm ashamed about but um definitely at the time of coming out from the crash it was more um i don't know because even though i was in a coma so I was not aware of what was going on around me. Mm -hmm. 
I didn't even realise how injured I was, but I was having these weird dreams. And I think those dreams were informed by what was going on. And I always remember um, having this, the last dream. Don't ask me why. I was in this hospital. I dreamt I was in the hospital, not knowing why, but I was by some elevator doors and there were some doctors around me, but they were Japanese. I don't know why Japanese. But I always remember this one doctor turning around to me and saying, oh, good, if you're willing to fight, we will fight for you. Mm-hmm. And then I woke up. That was the last thing you remember before you woke up. Yeah, it was that particular dream. It's always stuck with me. That's if you're willing to fight, we will fight with you. That's awesome. I do believe uh, that when people are in a coma, they're still conscious. There's still a part of them that's lucid and that they will hear things or smell things or, you know, feel things or, you know, had have dreams. And uh, I've always wondered about that. So that's interesting. Yeah. And I think your subconscious, because it's got no context, um, it just makes things up. I mean, another dream I always remember was, don't ask me why, um, I was in the like the Moulin Rouge in Paris, watching, it's a watching good place cabaret. to be. <laughs> cabaret. <laughs> Don't ask me what that what my brain was doing. Wait, were you on stage or watching the show? No, I was, I was in the audience. <laughs> hmm. That's funny. Um, now, immediately after you got out of the the hospital, were you assigned? a nurse to come look after you at, at home or uh, I know from your book, I, I believe for like a year or something that your sister moved closer to you to help you out. Yeah, actually I discharged myself from hospital. Um, I got to the stage I was beginning out cause I was being in there for three months mm-hmm. and I was beginning to feel institutionalized. I actually got to the stage where I thought I'm never going to see my home again. Um, and I was, I was unhappy because my life was no longer in danger by that time. I felt that the treatment you get, don't get me wrong. It was brilliant treatment all the way through, but it becomes less essential. So if they say they're coming to do your physiotherapy at 10 o'clock in the morning, it might be 12 o'clock. And when you've got nothing to do, but sit in a hospital room, you know, that's aggravating. So I spoke to the head surgeon and he agreed that most of the stuff, the other operations I had, I could have as an outpatient, provided that I had support at home. Well, I was married at the time, but even then my marriage wasn't great. Um, and my sister was uncomfortable about me going home with my husband because she didn't feel he would look after me. And at that time, I couldn't do anything for myself. So, um, yeah, she gave up her college and she moved in with me and she was my nurse. So, no, we didn't have any official nurse, but she trained in the hospital as to what she had to do with the um, cleaning and the massaging and the looking after of the grass. And she'd drive me to all my therapies, which for a while was a full-time job because they even had to do because my vocal cords were so burnt which is hence the reason why they croak every now and then 
um, I had to be taught how to breathe again and how to project my voice again, even through damaged vocal cords. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of therapies back then. So you also had uh, voice or speech, voice training or speech therapy. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? I, I'm a public speaker yeah. that's got my boards, but I mean, that's why I have a glass of water beside yeah. me all the time. Mm. Um, but it will eventually go. If I talk for too long, mm. and I, I am talking for hours, mm -hmm. um, it will just stop. They, they do just give up. But actually, silence can be quite pleasant every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> now, during your whole time in the, the hospital and then in your uh, recovery per period and you said that you, you couldn't work, um, financially, I mean, were you well looked after with your uh, insurance or dis disability or did you get um, some sort of survivor's compensation from, from the rail company? Yeah, the, uh, the legal case, because I didn't bring the legal case, but... There was, um, because there was such an uproar about what had happened, the rail industry was duty bound to look after all of us survivors, um, particularly us injured ones, because some people were able to walk away, thankfully, from it. Um, but even they had problems because obviously mentally it affected them. So they had to support us and they supported us by... Um, looking at either our income or in my case because i was self-employed my accounts and then um replenishing my income that i would have been earning um so they supported us until the government or I, i'm not even sure who brings the court case against them i'm assuming it's some form of government department um until that court case finished they had to keep up the payments so that went on for five years. Um, it's interesting which, how, how long it takes something to, to get to, to court and through the judicial system and be uh, decided on. Five years. Yeah, and then, then there's negotiation. Mind you, having said that, because you've got to think, there was over 450 people on those trains. 31 people died. Um, then there was a handful of us that were badly injured and we should have died. So each one of us had a solicitor representing us. Hmm. So then they each individual has to be dealt with on an individual basis. So I can see why it went on for so long. But the annoying thing was because um, any money that had to be paid out was covered by insurance because the rail industry obviously have the insurance themselves. I remember that when we were heading into the fifth year, the insurance company that had insured the rail companies either went out of business or withdrew and they sold on the rail insurance to another insurer. And that new insurer then turned around to us all and said, we're going to have to start the legal case uh, again. Uh, and that's when being in front of the public actually paid off dividends because I stood up in front of the media and the the public and said, I cannot believe this. We are not, I have, you know, our lives are on hold. We cannot move on. I'm desperate here. And I actually burst into tears because I was that upset. And the public actually put pressure on the government for us. That's awesome. They listened to the lady behind the mask. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's not because I had any power. I would genuinely just stood on those steps where they were filming and I poured my heart out and I said, this is just so unfair. Um, and I was upset because we were facing another five years of... Well, you had a genuine public breakdown and you were being honest and emotional. Yeah. yeah. But what I could, what I would never have guessed was that the general public were picking up, that the general public were picking up enough to put pressure on so that the insurance company went, whoa, no, hang on a sec, it's okay, we will settle everything. So were you happy in the end with the, the compensation? Did you feel it was enough? Yeah, I mean, who knows? Um, who knows? Because, hmm. you know, you're talking potentially then for the rest of your life. Um, I didn't know whether I'd be able to get back to any form of work. If I'd never worked again at all, no, it wouldn't have been enough. Um, I mean, I'm not allowed to say ever yeah. what it was, but... Um, no, it wouldn't have lasted. Mm. However, I suppose my financial background has helped because I was able to invest some of it. Um, but again, me being the type of mental attitude that I do have, mm -hmm. I wouldn't have been happy sitting around just going, oh, well, that's me done. Mm -hmm. um, I need the challenge of being able to work and I need the challenge of being able to earn some money. Mm. But again... I think I mentioned earlier on, my my expectations of what I need money for is a lot lower. It is a lot lower. How how were you able to cope and keep up the your strength and uh, stamina when you were the the face and the symbol of a train and rail safety and you had all of these media interviews and, and photo calls uh, how, I mean, mentally, emotionally, physically, how did you get through all of it? <laughs> um, I'll be honest, I was a mess. I was a mess. It, in front of camera, I did it. Pull it together. Because, yeah, only because it was such an important hmm. thing to get done. And I seemed to be able to rise to an occasion. So, uh, But I would collapse the minute the camera was off. Hmm. That was me done. I would collapse. There were some times when I'd end up in bed for a week afterwards. I did not enjoy the media attention. Um, I never wanted to. <laughs> I digress slightly, but um, hmm. when the media attention was at its height, one of these celebrity shows came on to um, to my solicitor and said that they wanted me to go on one of these. Back then, it was quite new, these real-life celebrity shows. Hmm. Um, and I just went, no way, no way on earth. Because I've been watching also um, over the five years, the internet had become a big thing. The me um, social media was starting to become a big thing. I started to notice how the media can build you up, but they can also rip you back down again. And I always felt very uncomfortable about moving in that sort of circle. So I only got involved with the media on the basis of I need to get a job done. Once that job is done, I'm out of here. And that happened after five years. I felt the rail companies and the government had put the improvements in place and I dropped out of sight. I dropped out of public sight. And that was a conscious hmm. um, decision. I didn't want to be in the public eye. So you, f you feel that yeah, uh, you and the group had achieved 
your goals and um, now that rail safety, they've made improvements? I always said when I set up the group, I said the success of this group will be when it's lo no longer needed. Mm. And after five years, I felt like it was no longer needed. Plus, over the period, a lot of survivors had drifted away because they, they did move on with their lives, mm. which I think is healthy. Mm -hmm. So we would we would become quite a small group. And as I said, it wasn't necessary to campaign anymore. Mm -hmm. So we've stayed friends. Some of us have stayed in touch and stayed friends, but we don't run a group anymore. Um, and we it served its purpose. Up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Time to move on. There's new adventures to be had. <laughs> now, we'll only talk about this if, if you want to, but um, when they were weaning you off of the morphine and the medication, you you took up drinking, correct? No, that started while I was on morphine. Oh. Um, yeah, it was, it was a messy time. Mm. And I think I say in the book, don't I, that it's a time that I'm ashamed of mm. in hindsight. But, yeah, it was just too much. Yeah. I think the campaigning and the operations that were still going on and just I was asking too much of myself. Mm. And, yes, I started self-medicating with alcohol. But that you're right, it was as I was coming off morphine, mm -hmm. but it was while I was on morphine. So I wasn't really in control. Mm -hmm. However, I didn't stop. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. So two drinks turned into four, and then four drinks turned into six, and so on and so forth. And I disappeared down that hole of alcoholism. Well, um, I, I, my heart goes out to you, and I completely get it because I'm a recovering drug addict, and I know that when life got to be too much or there's too much depression or too much anger and they needed an, an escape, so I, under, I completely understand. And sometimes you just want things to stop, don't you? Mm -hmm. uh, you, you just think to yourself, oh, just give me a break just for five minutes, mm -hmm. never five minutes. Yeah. And then your body starts to physically break down, so you then feel awful, and then you think, for some peculiar reason, the alcohol or the drugs is going to help you feel better, and it's a nasty cycle, a very nasty cycle. It's it's only in the beginning, maybe the first sip or, or whatever, but it's the aftermath, and then what it does to your body or to your mind or to your relationships, your finances, it starts to affect everything. And, I mean, what's stupid when I look back is I have PTSD. Mm. Alcohol is a depressant. <laughs> <laughs> it is probably the worst thing <laughs> I could possibly have done on top of everything else. Um, but, hey, logic doesn't come into it. Really. Now, did you recognize that you needed to stop and did you get help or did someone speak not to you and and give you a kind of a slap in the face and say wake up no i didn't get any help for a long time mm. um i think really um it was a friend of my a survivor friend actually i was at her place i'd got horribly drunk mm. i was raving about something i don't know what um and i stumbled and of course you can't correct yourself so i just fell over and she turned around and she shouted at me and she said 
I'm your friend and I'm here to support you, but I will not support a drunk. And that was enough of a wake up oh call. <laughs> um, and I actually, when I got home, I tipped all my alcohol down the sink and I did not touch alcohol again for years afterwards. Now I allow myself to socially drink mm -hmm. with friends, mm -hmm. but I'm constantly careful about how much. Mm -hmm. I never get myself drunk, drunk. Um, I won't let myself do that. It's good for you. That's difficult, and I applaud you. Now, th over the years, did you have uh, therapy to help you as well with the, the depression or um, PTSD and other things? Yes, I've had, um, I have a really good psychologist. Mm. And, um, well, I've, I've been through several. Mm. <laughs> Psychologists are, it, one person isn't always the right person. Mm -hmm. The first psychologist I had, so the difference between them, so I had a psychiatrist and a psychologist. Psychiatrists, think of them, they're the ones that give you the medication. I had a really good one in the end who said to me, imagine um, your mental problems, your PTSD is like a broken leg. The medication is there as a plaster. It will have to come off at some point, but you're healing. So let it help you heal. The psychologist is the one that gets you talking. And I actually went through four psychologists before I found one that I actually got on with. And that was mainly because the other three kept on wanting me to look backwards and one of them kept on saying you've got to cry you've got to cry I'm going I don't want to cry leave me alone um whereas the one I chose to proceed with he wanted to talk about the future he said we know what's happened we will deal with the aftermath but we need to now start thinking about the future and he is still my psychologist to this day that sounds very very healthy and i was just talking to someone else who's a a life coach and an equus coach they work with their clients with horses and they said they're <clears throat> they're different than a therapist because they're not dealing with and healing the past it's about what to do move how to move forward absolutely yeah mm -hmm. i mean you have to accept your past mm -hmm. um, and i think for me that the biggest point was accepting but refusing to be defined by it mm. and that's when you can move on but yeah i mean i i i do lean on my psychologist sometimes we don't speak for months there's no need to mm. but then other times because life's constantly throwing challenges at you isn't mm. it so um there are times when i need support again mm. um, and yeah he's there every time i need it that's awesome did you find that on, on the 10th anniversary of the incidents when uh, they had you ride the same train this, on the same route and, and so forth, and then I think uh, you, you wrote your book shortly after that, do you, do you feel that all of that gave that period closure? In a way, yes, you're right. Um, when on the 10th anniversary, when I arrived at Paddington, which is where I should have ended up 10 years before, I felt like, finally, I've finished the journey. <laughs> I got so here. Yeah, I got here at long last. Hmm. Um, so that was a relief. Um, 
but it did take me a, a, quite a while afterwards to pluck up the courage to catch a train as per normal, <clears throat> you know, use it as a form of public transport. But I do now. I do catch it. Never enjoy it. Never, ever enjoy it. And I'm still in touch even to this day with the rail industry because if I spot anything when I'm traveling around, I'm straight on the phone to them. Um, Good for you. And they, they listen. They go, uh-oh, it's Pam. <laughs> In a weird sort of way, yeah. I think they jump every time I'm in <laughs> Don't, <laughs> answer. Don't answer. We recognize that number. It's fair. <laughs> you can get burner phones in this country as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, it was a form of closure. Hmm. Um, and, yeah, again, it was a way of moving on from what had happened. Mm -hmm. Who's, whose idea was it that you write the book? I was asked to. Hmm. Um, I was actually asked to because somebody said, oh, it'd be really interesting. But the book you have read is the third attempt. The first draft went into the publisher and they said, crap. <laughs> they said what you wrote is was crap? Yep. Yeah, because I wrote it myself. Um, and they, they said, oh, just rubbish. And Oi. when I asked ask them for some feedback, I, I get one that, because I just threw it up in the air. You know, I thought, not doing this. But when I read it a little while later, I thought, I know what the, I was talking in the third person throughout. I was mm. pushing mm. everything that happened away. Mm -hmm. Then the second draft, they came back and said, better, because it's in the first person, mm -hmm. but you're not being honest, are you? <laughs> And I went, oh, okay. And that's when I then enlisted the help of a writer friend and said, right, the only way we're going to get the honesty out is for you to talk to me as my friend, and then we'll get it down in the book. And that's what you've just read. And it is, I, for, I love that you encompassed your whole life, that we get your childhood, that we, you know, get your... Uh, years as a young adult and your success as a, uh, as a as a businesswoman so that we we know you because you're more than just being a, a survivor of this incident you're 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 a person you're a human being who's 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 lived this full life and also we get what you've done after and of course we've get everything that you that you went through um after the the incident and um I could not believe the the de the detail that is in there, and I was like, "Were you keeping notes all along, or do you have amazing memory uh, recall, or did you have to research some of that?" Because you know, this is like years later that you were writing this, and I imagine it takes a few years to write a book, but. I was just amazed at the wealth of detail in there. Yeah, I um, when I wrote the book, I told you that it, it was about my third or fourth draft. <laughs> it was a hard work. But no, for me, it was um, because you'll see on the front cover that it's actually written with a co-writer um, called Gareth. And he was one that was teasing out the story from me. 
So although I would I would physically write bits to add the actual emotional bit, the experience bit, but he would then go off if I wasn't certain about dates and he would check out the dates for me. So it really was a collaboration to get that book finished. Um, but it's something that we're both quite proud you, of. You should be. I was thinking like this would just make a tremendous film. I think they there's a documentary, but I'm I'm like someone has to be a champion for this. I mean, some uh, someone who's a, a you know a survivor and then takes it up to fight against the the system, the rail system. Like, there's so much in there. This is like a great and not just a woman's movie. This is just a, a people's movie, a movement. <laughs> Oh, bless. Well, I mean, it would be lovely yeah. if somebody did. But um, to be honest, I think the time has passed because it's not recent yeah. history. Yeah. Um, and I know because when you think about it, reality films have only recently come in that they, they weren't really, particularly 20 years ago, they weren't really yeah. that many yeah. made. Um, or you had to be super famous for anything to yeah. get made. Well, the other thing that would make me hesitate, actually, to be honest, Kev, is because I'm so open in there about my faults as well, I'm sort of sat there thinking, you know, there are parts in that book, and I'll be honest and say I'm an unsympathetic character sometimes. But, you know, we're in the day and age where where we embrace that. the the there's We've gone all the way to, like, the anti-hero. You're not an anti-hero, but like we've we've gone, we've we've gone there. <laughs> it just makes you you yeah, have more color. I mean, it makes you more human, you know. And well, I yeah. mean, it makes me honest. Yeah. Um, and I know through the experiences that I've been through, I know myself very well, and I will. I will be the first one to put my hand up and say I do have faults, and I recognise my faults. You could be faults. the consultant on the film. That's not that. That's not how that happened. <laughs> now, um, these questions. Now, if you don't like the question, just say next because there's there's over ten here, okay. and whatever ones you want to answer, okay, it's all up to you. What? How did okay. how did the accident af affect you? What were you like after, and what were are you like now? Have you noticed a change? Yes, a lot. Um, I actually refer to myself as pre and post crash pan because I consider myself wow. as two very different people. Before the crash, wow. you wouldn't have liked me. You wouldn't have liked me at all. I wow. was a money grabbing financial advisor. I was lucky if I saw my family once a year. I was very much into, you know, getting the latest car every single year, going on five-star holidays, um, drinking champagne. That was my drink of choice. So I was very much, because I was brought up in this country, in the UK, under the Thatcher government, mm. um, unfortunately, money was good and greed was good. Well, I mean, you guys have got that wonderful film, Wall Street, haven't you? It was... Wow. Well, Ra Reagan and Thatcher. I mean, yeah. it was we were parallel countries. It was you know the the hippies became yuppies, yeah. and it was all about the house and the car and, money, and the money. Yeah, and, and the money. Yeah. Um, and to yeah. be honest, it was it was during the train crash, as I thought I was going to die when I saw that fireball, that that mm. thought is not been worth it went flashing in my head. 
And it was a realisation mm. that I can't take any of it with me. I'm about to die. Mm. Um, and I made a promise to myself when I woke up from the coma in the hospital, I made a promise to myself that I would never allow that to happen again. So all the way, even though I had the turbulent recovery and I had other problems, um, ever since that time, I've tried to live my life where I put my family and friends first. Money is not so, so much of a factor now. You know, I buy secondhand cars and I run them into the ground until they fall apart on me. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't lie and say I don't like comfortable things. I like to be comfortable and I like to be able to pay of my course. bills. But I'm not after mm -hmm, making mm -hmm. millions of pounds or, or millions of dollars. Um, and I'm not about all the flashiness. I much prefer to be yeah. a nice person. And I hope I treat everyone the way I want to be treated myself. So my first reaction with any strangers I meet is to believe the best in them um, until they prove me wrong, which does happen. <laughs> Well, you're lovely, and I do. You're right. I do like this, Pam. I don't appreciate <laughs> that other type of per person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You wouldn't have liked it at all. I mean, I look back and I actually blush when I think how how I used to be. But I could blame that on you, couldn't I? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. We learn as we age. Now, currently, how do you deal with? life and people and situations i mean if it's not what you're expecting or hoping for or you know someone's crappy or you just have a crappy day how, how, how do you deal with that and what does like self-care look like to you self-care i'm pretty <laughs> rubbish at to be honest oh i get told off so much by my family that's honest uh, and my doctors for that matter <laughs> No, because oh. <laughs> um, as you and I have spoken about, mm. I'm very much an on-the-go person and I get annoyed mm. because my body, with the damage it's had, mm. Mm. it cannot physically keep up. So every now and then my body will pack up and the way my body packs up is just to shut down. Um, it's not always a depression. It's Sometimes it mm. just physically mm. makes it impossible for me to get out of bed mm. and I just have to accept that's the way it is. Um, I have mm -hmm. tried in recent years, much mm -hmm. to my psychologist's mm -hmm. delight, I've tried to pick up on the warning signs mm -hmm. when I know I'm overdoing things. And I now do build in days when I'll go, mm -hmm. okay, I'm not doing anything today. And I will sit down and I will just let my body rest. Um, however, again, this probably happens for a lot of people. Sometimes mm -hmm. you can't, it's not so easy to shut your brain up particularly if you got a lot on but you know we we have to listen to our bodies because even if we're going past you know where we where our bodies can take us our bodies are telling us something and then we have to like when you know when people get sick or whatever that's your body telling you like you need to take slow down or take some time off yeah and unfortunately i think in the modern world because of the normal pressures that 90% of the population have they push themselves beyond that which is where I think so much um, illness and mental problems come from uh, totally I'm lucky in as much as I have the capacity to be able to say right this weekend I'm not doing anything 
Uh, yeah. But not everyone has that. I, I, and I would think because of what you've been through, maybe your body is even more, you know, sensitive and the alarms go off sooner. Yes. And um, I don't always catch them, but I do mm. listen. I mean, pain is, a. <laughs> again, you all know this, pain yeah. is something that you can put up with for so long and then it's you're just too tired to, with yeah. it to, to bother. Um, so it, it's almost like admitting defeat every now and then, but <laughs> it's not the same as holding your hands up and going, oh, I give up. It's more a case of going, all right, body, I'm going to listen to you now. I will sit down. How and why did you become a public speaker? I fell into public speaking by accident. <laughs> mm. I'd actually, once I was well enough to consider doing some form of occupation, I'm not the type mm -hmm. to sit around and I can't sit and do nothing. I tried various things where I thought I can work really hard, but then there's a break. Like um, I qualified as a project manager. Um, so I thought, work really hard on a project, then take time off afterwards to rest up. But it was while I was working on a project, another professional speaker approached me and said, why aren't you on the circuit? I didn't realise it was a circuit. Uh, and I certainly did not know that professional speakers, the good ones, you get paid mm -hmm. to speak. Mm -hmm. So I sort of, um, he took me along to something that's called the Professional Speaking Association. Mm. I know America's got it. And you're, that association is part of the Global Speaking Federation, which is American. Um, and they took me under their wing. I joined them as a club and I learned my trade. I mm. approached somebody who was successful as a speaker, asked him to become my mentor. And I actually took some time out and I trained for almost two years on how to speak and how to develop a good talk. Because I think the mistake a lot of speakers make is they think it's all about mm. them and it's not. Yeah. When you're talking, it has to be about the people that are listening or watching you yeah. and trying to pass on or share things that they would find useful in their own lives. Otherwise, what's exactly. the point of standing up and speaking? Yeah, you have to figure out what is it that they need, the value that you can bring to them, yeah. how to better themselves, how to better them, their their business, their lives, or what is it in their in their lives? You're you're, yeah, true and right about that. Plus, don't don't, don't you think that um, most human beings, if they themselves are in a fairly happy contented place they want other people to join them in that happy contented place don't they uh, and i'm i'm always desperately sad when i am out and about in normal times when people come up and tell me their stories i tend to listen a lot while i'm out um, and some of it is just heartbreaking what people have to cope with now you've done some charity work right yep. yeah can you t t tell us a little bit about that how you got involved and what you're involved with yeah there's several charities well one charity actually approached me while i was still in hospital all those years ago <laughs> but it's called mm. the scar free foundation so um obviously it was mm. trying to find ambassadors for them that had mm. suffered um some scarring so i qualified but I got involved with them because their um, mission is to find a way to cure any wound mm. 
hmm. without any scarring at all. Um, and some of their work is fantastic. And two years ago, they announced that they think they're only one generation away from being able to commercially make that possible. That's amazing. Which would then mean people with scars would become a thing of the past. I mean, people like us, yeah. that, you know, are already scarred. We're yeah. stuck with it. But wouldn't it be great if if anybody who suffered, yeah. you know, it wouldn't be great mm. if they suffered, but if they had a wound, that it could be healed and not show any signs of it afterwards. So that's why I sort of support them. And then just for a bit of, because I like music, um, I support a charity called Culture Mix, which is actually a Afro-Caribbean band. Um, and they play steel pans and they play at Notting Hill Carnival and places around the country. Um, and that's been a real pleasure to give my support to them and help them grow. And they're doing really nice. well. And I imagine too, that just with charity work that the or volunteer work, anything like that, that a person would just feel good, you know? Yeah. Although that's not why I do it. I mean, I approach it like a job of work as in, I have to give them value. Um, and I tend to over give them <laughs> than, than possibly I could get away with, but at the same time, if, if you if you get involved with things, why do it half-baked? Yeah. You might yeah. as well throw yourself into that. it. I totally agree. Um, how do you stay resilient and motivated when everything appears stacked against you or challenges might sap your energy? Do you have a way? Yeah, I mean, I've been asked this a lot during COVID. Hmm. Um Again, uh, to be, I will be totally honest, there will be downtimes. There have been downtimes. Um, I am a human being. Everyone's a human being. However, it's drawing on the experience. I know things will get better. I know that however bad it is now, it was not as bad as it was for me 20 yeah. years ago. Um, and one of the phrases that always springs into my, whenever anything happens that's not good, The my automatic thing that springs into my head is, is anyone dead? Is anyone injured? No, in which case it's not important. Good. And that's really a mantra that I live by. I love that. How can you spot opportunities and grab them? <laughs> Are you quoting my own words at me? <laughs> Because oh. any change, good or bad, yeah. there's always an opportunity. Mm. You just mm. have to be not so caught up in the circumstances mm. that you're then sat there looking for it. Mm -hmm. And if you don't spot it straight away, you go off and you hunt for it because it will be there. Um, it might be hiding under a hedge somewhere or a tree or I don't know. It's, al it's it. always there. Yeah. Opportunity is all around us all the time. It depends if we we want to see it and if we want to accept it. Yes, and you have to raise your head above the parapet of whatever's going on around you yeah. in order to spot it, don't you? You, you have to have enough vision yeah. to look around and take stock. And that only happens when you can lift your head up and look above what's actually happening at ground level. 
How do you want to be remembered in the end? What legacy would you like to leave? Oh, I'd, I'd like people to think that I did make a difference, a positive difference. I'd like people mm. to look back and say, well, you know, it was nice knowing Pam or we'll miss mm. her. That would be nice. Mm. One of the things I do want to do, because I've already thought this through since the train crash, I've already arranged my funeral. Um <laughs> Because I decided I want to be cremated to finish off the job that the train crash started. I want Roxy music playing Smoke Gets In Your Eyes as everyone comes out of the crematorium. Um, and then I thought, yeah, then you've got to have a bit of Bob Dylan with Knocking On Heaven's Door, don't you? And a lot of whiskey. Um, no, actually, whiskey's not my choice. Uh, no, I'm a vodka nope. girl now these days. Uh, I do like a stolly. Uh, so some martinis. <laughs> <laughs> That's but the awesome. one thing I am absolutely adamant about is when I'm lying on my deathbed, and I know it's drawing near, I want to be able to look back on my life and say, that was fun. Oh, that's fantastic. What's up? I probably should have asked you this before that question. What lessons has life taught you the most? I think it's really difficult to encapsulate in one phrase, isn't it? It's taught me mm. so much. And mm. also the train crash, um, in a weird sort of way, had the train crash not happened, I don't think I'd be half the person I am now. Isn't that amazing? So that's also why in the book I say, in a strange sort of way, it's the best thing to have happened to me. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it, it's difficult to, how would you encapsulate it? Just to be a decent human being. Mm -hmm. And when I say decent human being, I'm not talking about a human being achieving things. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about being a human being alongside my fellow human beings. That's beautiful. Now, before we go into our final question or um, dialogue, where is the best place for people listening to get your book? Where do you want them to go? The best place, because I sell it cheaper than other sellers, <laughs> is my website. Okay. Um, yeah. It's on my website. It, I do do international shipping. Um, and my website is pamwarren.co.uk. P-A-M-W-A-R-R-E-N, right? Yeah, all one word. Yeah, all one word, all lowercase, and then dot, uh, oh. dot co dot uk. Yeah. Yes, yeah, get me. the book, and it's Behind the Mask. From Behind the Mask. From Behind the Mask. And it's yeah. a fantastic read. Did you get to finish it? Oh, yes, yes. The, the, uh, the three nights leading up to our first interview, I read it on all three nights and I was just en engrossed. I read every single page. Yeah. Oh, thank you, yeah. Kev. That's lovely. I, and I was pacing myself. I actually thought it was going to be a lot longer, but then you have your 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 uh, like bibliography and and everything at, at the end so it's like oh it's not it's not as long as i thought, <laughs> thought it was. that's <laughs> probably because i'm still alive kev i'm still i'm, still, <laughs> I'm on to book 
two now. There, there are actually the, the 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 last chapter was the blank pages because that's the rest of your life now that you're you're, you're living. Okay, fine. When are you going to get to write your book? Oh, they. I, I tell you, I've been um, threatening to write it for like 10 years now. And um, I, I mean, I'm ready now, please. Enough has happened. I, I, I say that every year, so much happens every year in my life, like every year is a book or at least a very dense chapter. <laughs> you know, people like us, either things happen or we just say yes to life and make things happen. Yeah. Uh, well, I think, can you please put me down on the um, list for... A pre-order, please. <laughs> you got it. I'm sending you a gift. Um, do you have a final message that you feel is important that you want to share with listeners today or anything else that you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, throughout the... I've really enjoyed speaking with you, Kev. Um, mm. And I think from... Because I listened to some of your podcasts before we spoke. And really, I mean, my one wish would be that however bad things get for anybody out there, that they 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 stop and remember people do love them. And those people that love them may not be people they even know yet. But in order to come mm. along and meet them, they have to hang around <laughs> and keep going. Um, and I just mm. I just really I wish that everybody could end up being at least content, if not deliriously happy all the time. Right. And they, they say you don't chase happiness. You don't look for happiness. You have to be happy right now. Everything has to be present tense. With whatever is happening in your life, you have to accept and be happy now. Because otherwise, you're always going to be chasing it, no matter what you have in your life. Yeah. So you have to learn to accept and be still and be present and accept it now. And I love that. That's a fantastic way to wrap up. Don't hang up because we're just saying goodbye to the listeners. But Pam Warren, I have absolutely loved speaking with you. I loved reading your book. I, I want to keep in touch. And like I said in the very beginning, you are a force <laughs> of nature. Thank you, Kev. Thank you for having me on your show. Oh, my pleasure. Lots of love to everyone. All right. Goodbye, everybody. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to Frankly Kev and spending some time with myself and my special guest, Pam Warren. If you'd like to find out more about Pam and some of the topics we discussed, you can find links on her page, episode 15 of Everyday Heroes, From the Ashes, on the franklykev.com website. You can also find it on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, Radio Public, Pocket Casts, and various other listening apps on the internet. Please feel free to comment and share, and if you'd like to leave a review, you can just go to Frankly Kev on Apple Podcasts. And more episodes can be heard on the FranklyKev.com website and the other listening platforms that I just mentioned. And if you'd like to help independent artists like myself bring you the content you want to hear, then please go to the donate page on FranklyKev.com. Every dollar counts, and your donation is greatly appreciated. Thanks again for joining us, and remember, just live simply and dream big, be kind, love deeply, and laugh often. It may not be original, but it is true. You take care until next time.